a great pleasure to be here at Living Word as always. And thank you for your welcome. I've been asked to speak this morning on the topic, the fear of God. And I was afraid to do it. <laughs> but here we are. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a pleasure to uh, see you all once again on Sunday morning. Great place to be here. And, uh, oh, always a great place to worship somewhere, but certainly it's, it's great to be here with you. Okay, without further ado, let's go. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's see. That's just not quite right for you. Not quite right. I feel like a knight in armour getting his uniform on before he <laughs> come and battle for the day. There's a prayer on the screen. Would you join me as we pray it all together? Thanks. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, please give us sharp minds to understand and soft hearts to believe. In Jesus' name. Amen. I know we've prayed that many times, but it's a prayer I do pray personally many times as well. Important that we have clear minds, but also pure hearts as, as we come before the Lord today. Okay. So, in a nutshell, this is what we're going to be talking about this morning, the, the fear of God. It says that the, that all the earth fear the Lord, and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And again, worship the Lord of the splendor of holiness, tremble before him, all the earth. Now there are two very well-known Old Testament statements about the fear of God. And both we wanted to, in fact, the phrase fear of God is, occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. Basically, the Bible as a whole, because there are not so many in the New. How do I know? Well, because I consulted my AI app on my phone and said, tell me, how many references are there to fear of God in the Old Testament? And I got the answer, so if AI said it, it must be right. <laughs> and uh, this means that the idea of fearing God is for all people everywhere. It's uh, not for people uh, generations ago or generations to come only, but it's for us as well because it comes all of us. Okay, now a little bit of background which we'll get through quite quickly. The Greek word which is used in the New Testament for fear is the word phobos. And straight away you will tell me the English word phobia comes from that. And the word phobia means an extreme or unreasonable fear. That's an English meaning. And that's why to call people something, being guilty of some kind of homophobia, just because you disagree with that particular practice, is really misleading because it doesn't mean to say you have an irrational fear, it just means you don't agree with it, that's all. But phobia has become a common word in our language, convenient to use for those who disagree with you. Anyway, um, the thing about words is they vary in meaning according to context. So, for example, you might say that you love ice cream, you love your husband or wife, you love your hobby, you love your enemy, or so many other things. And in English we use the same word for all of those, love. But you don't treat your wife like an ice cream. <laughs> you don't treat your husband like an enemy. And the word love has different capacities in, in each of those contexts. 
And uh, this, I think, is, is worth saying because the same applies to this word. It's a, there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, this word phobos, it's used with different meanings. So it's used, for example, about terror. The writer to the Hebrew says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's used about terror. It's used also about awe. As John falls on his face before the vision he sees of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. It's used about respect in um, Ephesians chapter, or about reference, I should say, Hebrews 12 28. Used about respect in Ephesians 5 33, a verse that literally means wives should fear their husbands. But uh, again, the context teaches us something different. That's inappropriate to use that particular meaning of the word fear, because it can mean something different, in that case, respect. And it can mean astonishment and so many other things as well. And so that, I think, might help us in understanding the biblical context here. And uh, I know that looks a bit technical, but it's a realistic thing is that the word fear doesn't always mean the same thing. It depends on the context. And for those who are interested in such matters, uh, nowadays we want to learn the meaning of a word, we go to the dictionary and look it up. Or these days, get your phone out, <laughs> look up a hand. What the original lexicographers did in producing a dictionary was to see how a word is used and then say this is what it means in that context. And we need to do exactly the same thing. Dictionary is not an authority, it is simply a description of how words are used. And the context is the main thing. And again, quite clearly, loving an ice cream and loving a marriage partner are two, two different things. Um, fearing a husband and respecting a husband are two different things, and so they might go on. So what are we talking about when it comes to the fear of God? Well, quite clearly, um, reverence is an appropriate one there. Press the right button and look right here. Reverence is an appropriate one. Uh, awe is another one. Possibly terror. Maybe astonishment. All of those words can apply to God, depending on the context that we are using. So, uh, keeping that in mind, let's go on now. If we can. There's something I'm not doing right here, but... Talk to the computer. Talk to the computer. Oh, that works. Okay. Well, the nature of godly fear. Now, fear is a normal response that threatens or endangers us. In this case, God. You're not afraid of something that you are not. You don't have any fear for something that's not a threat. It's not even something that becomes a threat that you become frightened of. It's not a threat. You don't worry about it. So you walk across the street and you see a caterpillar. You're not afraid because a caterpillar is not a threat. If you saw a snake, you might have quite a different response. So fear only applies to things that are dangerous. We might say the same about God. Um, he's called in the scripture the Lion of Judah, Revelation chapter 5. Well, that theme is picked up in a well-known children's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which some of you, I'm sure, have read. Yes? No? I read to your kids or something? grandchildren. And it's a fascinating passage here that I recall as I was thinking about this, where Susan and Peter meet Mr. Beaver. And he tells them, um, he says, Aslan is on the move. Oh, they say, tell us about Aslan. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, don't you know? Why daughter of Eve, oh, I missed a bit, sorry. Don't you know he is the king He's the lord of the whole wood. But he's not often here, as you understand. But he is the king. Oh, says Lucy, is Aslan a man? 
and men, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. <clears throat> oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he um, safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most of us or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And it's a very lovely way of describing uh, who Aslan is. I remember before this book was well known, I used to have occasion to drive to the country every, every week and uh, for various reasons. And I used to listen to the radio on Sunday morning and uh, this story was being serialised on the ABC on Sunday morning. And I, was, I had not, didn't know anything about it, I listened to it. I remember in the morning when I got towards the end of the book and suddenly dawned on me that Aslan is really a prototype of Jesus. Oh, I've got such a thrill. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I realised Lewis is a, pro a prophetic kind of a, a insight there into who Jesus really is. But I, I love that little bit. Is he safe? <laughs> of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's really, I suppose, the kind of thing we're going to be taking up here this morning. Point that way. So if I point it to you, Phil, it's going to work. Yes. Yeah, it does. Now that's power. All right. So let's look at a, a few practical applications here. First of all, I want to suggest that fear is the heart of worship. That may seem a strange thing to say because most of us would probably want to say love or something else is the heart of worship. In fact, just recently, uh, late last year, so, uh, somebody sent me a book manuscript to look at and commend. And I get a regular request for that, about 10 last year, I think. And my practice is, I won't commend a book unless I've actually read it. And of course that takes quite a bit of time to read and then comment. And I read this book, and he, the book was arguing, he said, had a new perspective on worship. He said that the, the whole thing about worship is intimacy. Worship is about intimacy with God. And uh, so, and, and that's why we worship. And I had two questions about that. I said, first of all, the phrase intimacy with God doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible, as far as I can find, or in none of the translations I checked anyway. But secondly, I thought, is that really what the scriptures say? And I came to a different conclusion. I just began to look, go through the scriptures and look up popular scriptures and well-known passages on worship, and some not so well-known. And I found that, in fact, uh, I couldn't find very much at all about intimacy being associated with worship. I found a great deal about fear. Or, oh, if we're going to remember our context, not sort of you know, this kind of fear, but, but uh, here on end and you know, shaking fear, but just a kind of a, a healthy sort of weariness. Uh, that is much more the, what worshipping God is all about. And another interesting thing, and you'll be interested in this end, I guess, uh, is the word worship in the Bible is never used as a noun, it's only a proverb. Do you know that? You've heard me say it before, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Worship as a noun means it's a name of something, as if worship is a thing, we get hold of it. It's never in the Bible used as a noun. I find it hard not to use it as a noun in some sentences, it just is difficult to do. But the scripture never does, only ever 
There's only ever a verb, something we do. It's something that's active and going on, being practiced. So I tend to say worshipping rather than just worship. Anyway, um, the, the verb of concern is the verb proskunio, which doesn't mean much to anybody except that its primary meaning is to fall on your knees or to fall on your face. That's its primary meaning. And uh, see the thing that we're sitting here in an Anglican building this morning, it's got nice cushions for us to kneel on. is it that Pentecostals, we say such a lot about worship, and if somebody says, clap your hands, all you people who clap our hands, um, I'll lift my hands up, I'll lift our hands up, um, fall down and worship and stay standing. Into <laughs> the others, but we never, we hardly ever kneel, unless it's a prayer meeting, we certainly don't fall flat on our faces. So, but then that's really what the word means. Look at Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And that's a very biblical definition of what worship is. It's essentially bowing down, uh, falling on your face. Now, what if you can't do that physically? And some of us probably can't. Uh, well, the attitude is the thing that really matters, of course, that we have an attitude of submission before God. But uh, even the, the practice of it is still a very important thing. You see that in verse like Matthew chapter 8 verse 2, where a leper came to Jesus to be healed. And you know, the King James Version and some other versions say, he came and he worshipped Jesus. But the verb here is, is that verb, and it literally means to fall down. So what happens here, as some translations put it, is that he came and he, the leper knelt before Jesus. That's what it means, he knelt down. And if you're wondering about some translations appearing to kind of water down the scriptures, not that, they're saying this is what the word actually means, to kneel down. And you know, there may be worshipping as well, of course, but the action is the action of falling down before the Lord. So that's the heart of worship. And it's a vulnerable position. When I was teaching at Bible college, and we were talking about all kinds of things, I used to spend one session where we practiced different ways of worshipping God. So how can you practice that? Well, I wanted them just to get used to different feelings and different attitudes and positions. Because the reality is when we get used to doing things a certain way, we find it very hard to do it differently. So we've got the students doing all sorts of things. Um, sitting, standing, lifting our hands, just, just doing all those things, doing them as sincerely as we could, nevertheless learning from them. And it was always fun when I got all the non-Pentecostals in the group doing a Jericho march, as we used to call it, marching around the room, you know, stomping the sea. And uh, on the other hand, I then get everyone kneeling or everybody flat on their face on the floor. The main problem with that was that people, the room had hardly ever vacuumed and the carpet was always very dusty. But anyhow, that was part of the problem and part of the deal. So we all lie flat on our faces and, and it's a, it, you feel very vulnerable when you do that because you can't see what's happening behind you or above you. Which is why ancient emperors and rulers would say, expect people to you know, prostrate themselves before them when they came into their presence. So, because it's, it's, it, you can't defend yourself. You're really you're laying everything down literally and, and emotionally and psychologically as well. You're saying, I, I'm, this is an act of submission. So when worshipping is essentially that, it's one way or another an essential act of submission before the Lord. And, and so there's a combination of kind of uh, fear and, and awe, and the awe is what promotes the fear. Remember, we don't fear something that's not dangerous, but we fear something that is, and God is dangerous. God is very troubling at times. 
in the things that he demands or expects of us. Alright. Oops. Now, um, second thing I want to say is love and fear go together. And this kind of balances out a bit. Look at this, this passage from Psalm 103, a very well-known psalm. Uh, I remember memorizing most of this psalm when I was at uh, high school. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You still like to say that one after a meal. All that is within me, bless his soul. And then the next verse says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so your youth which are like the eagles, and who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And so it goes on. But in the middle of the psalm, it says this, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. To those who fear him, it seems unusual because it's a psalm about God's love, but his love expressed to those who fear him. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion who to? to those who fear him. And then the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for whom? For those who fear him. And over and over again, it's saying it three times in one psalm. But you see, there's a combination of things here. God's love comes upon those who fear Him. So as we fear God, then it's, it's an act of submission, it's an act of humiliation, if you like, it's an act of vulnerability, but at the same time it opens us up to God's love to be displayed toward us. As if we walked into an ancient palace and an emperor of the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans who was on the time, he looks down upon us and we are absolutely vulnerable, but instead of the emperor saying, off on his head, he comes and lifts us up. He shows love as we bow down before him. That's the combination of those two things. All right, here we go, Phil. He works and working, good. Okay, so wise people fear God. Before I say more about that, I'm going to ask Vanessa if she come and talk to you a minute. Because she has a little testimony and a story or something. Or am I interviewing you? What are we doing? Am I interviewing you or are you just going to talk? Here you go, just talk to me. I guess. Somebody help me. Good morning, everybody. I got converted at the age of 16, 17 going on 17 around there and my big thing was to learn to stop swearing that was my big sin before God I felt at the time and but further along the way I realised there was other things such as in the Ten Commandments uh, that we don't want what other people have got, which is a, a big one. Um, and it was a journey. But I had something happen last week in Narendra. I was driving with a friend in the car and she pulled up at a house and a man came to the car who was part of the church. And he shared that his wife was giving him such a terrible time and she was, even if he looked at a woman, uh, he was in trouble. Even if he was served by a woman in a shop, he was in trouble. She was in an extreme situation 
but she was giving him such a terrible time that he said that he was going back to swearing and he hadn't swear, sworn for 18 years since he got converted and, and I saw danger signs for him that he was in an extreme place so I asked my friend to make sure that some man followed him up fairly soon or I felt he might lose his salvation. And uh, so that was a big one for me as a young person. But I can't remember what those words were now. It's funny, they're, they're not even in the brain, which is rather wonderful, and they don't pop out anywhere for that. I'm very, very thankful. But I had an experience once in Miranda. I was out walking and there's beautiful waterways in Sydney and I'd walk to this waterway when I could walk without this. And I had an experience, just a sudden experience of seeing a huge light and everybody prostrated. Is that, a, is that a Frustrated. Word? Anyway, everybody lying down in front of the, this awesome light. And it just came from nowhere. I, I was out walking and praying, but, but this it was like a, a snap vision of this huge light and everybody prostrating down with the light. Um, and it really impacted me um, that when we see God, that might just be what we do. Uh, in Pentecostal circles, sometimes we hear sentences that reflect that when we see God, we'll sort of be lovey-dovey or something. But I think that might be more to Jesus than to God. I think God seems to be a sense, invites a sense of awe. And I just saw it, and it, it, it was really like seeing a whole lot of Muslims as they lie down for their ally. But it was, it was just so powerful that I felt when I think of God today, I still think of that bright light, and it does impact me. Uh, looking at my life, my life and my sinfulness. Um, Can I just ask you one question before you go? Um, didn't you say that uh, when you first became a Christian, as a young Christian, that you were it was a sort of fear of God that also kept you back from sin? Yes, I was afraid to lose my salvation. I was really afraid that if the worst, and I started swearing again that I would lose my salvation. Uh, I was, um, I hadn't done really horrible things, but they were still sinful, and I was afraid that I didn't really know how not to be afraid that I would lose this wonderful experience I had of being close to God. So yes, I was a bit nervous okay. until I grew a little bit and went to Bible college. Mm -hmm. And having lived with you for 64 years, I'm pretty glad you stopped swearing. <laughs>
Okay, let's go on. Wise people fear God. Wise people. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I rather like that picture by the paper bag over his head saying, I can't see God. <laughs> and uh, surely that describes how a lot of people are in the world today without reason. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That sort of statement is made frequently in the book of Proverbs. So it's easy enough to dismiss God and you know, just wipe him out of the scene. But that's a very foolish thing to do. The scripture says that in real life it's a very foolish thing to do. And I think we see so many examples of, of that around us in our society today. We have people acting in a way as if there's no God. Because to them there is no God. And we can spend a lot of time on the reasons for that. But a primary one, of course, is the, what's happening in our schools. The children are being taught that science explains everything, that evolution explains everything, so who needs God? And uh, they don't know any better, being little kids, and even teenagers who don't read, don't think much, don't know any better either. And that's a great tragedy, because it, when people once had a fear of God, even though they might still do wrong, they'd still, they'd still be frightened and fearful of what might happen. That unfortunately has changed. True holiness is truly awesome. And I'd like you to look at that line there that God's holiness is such that it scares us. Remember the story of Isaiah? He says he was uh, uh, praying and he saw that there was this vision of he saw the Lord of hosts, I, and this and that. <clears throat> and before the Lord of hosts were uh, a bunch of seraphim, each with six wings, two uh, the eyes and two to fly with and two covering their feet. And as they were there before the throne of the Lord of Armies, as one translation puts it, and they they they, they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what was Isaiah's response? What's the first word he said? Woe, woe is me. And he's terrified because the heaven had opened enough for him to see something of the glory of God. And that's put terror into his heart. <clears throat> he said, I'm, I'm, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm amongst the people of unclean lips. And then probably remember the rest of the story of how he's cleansed and commissioned. But that's holiness. And we, we I don't sound sort of cynical here, but uh, if you're a songwriter, um, two similar words are very easy to use and very handy to have. So uh, words like holy and worthy occur in lots of songs because they just fit in so easily. And uh, you know, I'm not suggesting anybody's got ulterior motives there, but it's just, it's just an easy thing to do. And they're easy to sing. So we sing and we sing. And uh, it's wonder sometimes that we really know what we sing. Why do we call Jesus worthy? Because of what he did. Because of his sacrifice on the cross. Why do we call God holy? Because he is. And holy means, and like Isaiah, we see the purity of God. The glory of God. It, it terrifies us. When we have a good look. Because we see God's holiness in our lack of holiness. As you may know the word holy actually means separate or set apart. 
Because and it's interesting, the same thing happens in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 rather, you find again four, uh, a group of living creatures, and they also are singing, and they also have six wings, they're also singing, holy, holy, holy. So from Isaiah right through to Revelation, right through this theme, Old and New Testament both, where God is set apart, He is different from everybody else, different from everything else, holy, sinless and pure, where whatever, if there's light with God, there's a light that is so blinding we can't look at. And uh, if there's power with God, it's so pure power that every other power looks dirty and corrupt by comparison. If there's uh, any kind of love with God is such an all-embracing love that all our feeble attempts at love are just that, just feeble in comparison. So the holiness of God inspires a fear of God and that's what, in a sense, part of what repentance means. Repentance means we, we face up to our sin, we recognize what our sin is, we recognize our desperate need of forgiveness, we recognize that sin is so bad that it cost Jesus his life uh, on the cross. And we see all that and, and that all comes out of God's holiness. Because when we see the holiness of God, then we begin to realize that, to use Paul's phrase, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Realize how sinful sin actually is and how black and ugly and awful it is in comparison with the purity and holiness of God. And so we look, look at our lives and we see things happening here and there and somewhere else. And, and then as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we begin to see God's holiness and we think a holy God and that kind of thing don't go together. Yeah, they're, they're separate. And dear friends, I, I guess if I wanted you to remember anything this morning, this would be a key thought. And the fear of God is because of the holiness of God. Because when we see how holy God is, we see how unholy we are, how desperately we need to walk in the light of the, of the sacrifice of Christ for us. Alright. So, <clears throat> I've just got the words up there of an old hymn that was written in the in the 1600s, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only if thou art holy there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. There's a songwriter who got hold of what this is all about. Okay. You doing well, Phil? No, you're not. <laughs> Come on. Oh, sorry. I don't want to button. Yeah, flat. Got it. Got it. Okay. <coughs> oh. Okay, I'll try again. We must consider also the wrath of God. Look at Romans chapter two, verse seven. For those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, He will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. This is a New Testament. Pretty strong. And, but he goes on three chapters later to say, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's wrath has been satisfied through the death of Christ, but it has not disappeared. And I that last sentence is mine, my pause. So, okay, but God's wrath has been satisfied through the death of Christ. It's very smart, God tells us. We're justified by His blood, saved by Him. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean to say that God's wrath has disappeared. It's just as far as we are concerned, has been 
nullified. The wrath of God is still there. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul goes on to say that when Christ comes, he will come in blazing fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel. Very solemn words. We don't like to preach on those very often, popular these days. Talk about sin and wrath and stuff. And the word sin is pretty well fallen out of most people's vocabulary. They don't believe in it anymore. And a great philosopher, his name is Lusby, said um, the fact that you say a foolish thing a million times doesn't make it any less foolish. Think about it. Yeah. One person may say there's no sin, another million people may agree there's no sin, but if it was wrong the first time, it's still wrong the last time. Repeating it doesn't make it any different. And that's what happened in our society so much. But we need to be conscious of this, that God's wrath still prevails. So it's the fear of God motivates us. Paul says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Behind their amazing faith, the apostles had a healthy fear and awe of God. That's what Paul's saying to him. Because we are afraid of God deep down. We have a healthy fear of God, so we want to persuade people to repent so that they don't come under that wrath and that holy judgment of God. It looked like it was a, almost a contradiction in terms of the two things are there and Jesus comes in the middle to bring it all together and to deal with the wrath, but yet not take it away because holiness is holiness, it doesn't change. You can say it a million times, but it's still the same. It doesn't change. Um, so, <coughs> the lion and the lamb kind of coming towards the end there. Remember Psalm 103, we kind of quoted this one earlier in the this morning. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The steadfast love of the Lord, everlasting to everlasting on those who fear. Remember that earlier on the message. Um, and uh, we have both things here then. We have the compassion of God, and we've just been talking about the wrath of God. Illustrated in the book of Revelation, by the two images of the lion and the lamb. Now I'm sure you are familiar with this, a lot of our songs talk about it. And in Revelation chapter 4, then in chapter 5, we find that the angel says to John, says, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And John says, I turned around and looked and I saw a lamb slain. So this is one and the same thing. But what is interesting in the book itself, look at those statistics there. Okay? The word the little lion occurs twice in the book of Revelation. The word lamb occurs 29 times in reference to Jesus, both of those. And I think that gives us God's perspective. The wrath is still there. Holiness is still there. It still must. It's never changed. It's still true. Um, but 29 lambs for every two lions. And uh, I think that's, that's just a, a wonderful reminder I'm for a moment. Yet interestingly enough, when we go to the next uh, passage, uh, it says here, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. Now, I, I, whenever I read that passage, and I read it often, I, I can't help but say to myself, what kind of fear and terror must be in the lives of all these people 
whether they're slaves, whether they're free, whether they're kings, whether they're rulers, whether they're fighters, what kind of terror must be in their hearts that they would rather have a mountain fall on them than face God, the wrath of God. What kind of fear must be in their hearts? And I don't know any <clears throat> New Testament passage that, or any biblical passage that so clearly expresses that point that our God is an awesome God, as we sang this morning. He is a holy God. And, and uh, you know, his, his holiness is beyond description. And His wrath is still there. And so, here's these people saying, Mount Barker, cover me, rather than let me face Jesus. Wherever you come from, Mount Lofty, Mount Everest, whatever it is, cover me, rather than let me face. But look who it is they're facing. Look who it is. Cover me and hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is coming. Who can stand? And that's that's a strange thing, it's what we call an oxymoron. Two words that shouldn't go together. You know, like short sermon. You know, they're, they're, they're words that just shouldn't be together. <laughs> or maybe Pentecostal theology. <laughs> but wrath and lamb shouldn't go together. But they do. It's the wrath of the lamb. And even that is terrifying. What of the wrath of the lion? If the wrath of the lamb strikes terror in people's hearts, what about the wrath of the lion? And the, you can't skirt around this. You can't say, oh, you're just preaching hellfire. We're preaching the truth. This is what the scripture says. This is the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the first one. This is up to date. And there's this frightening thing. And uh, I don't know how many of you, some of you come from farm backgrounds, you know, if you've got a fairly young, small lamb, it's cuddly and it's nice, and you can pick it up and you can hug it, it's all pretty beautiful. Um, whereas if you had a baby lion, you'd think twice about doing that, even a kitten. You wouldn't want to pick it up too readily. And, but, and if you're walking into a farm, I remember, I mean, even a lamb, it's going to be frightening. I remember as a five-year-old being on an uncle's farm down in Congaroy in Gambia. And uh, they had a pet lamb who was actually grown quite fat and big because he's getting all the best food and everything. And I was carrying a bucket and he saw me. Obviously thought the bucket had some milk in it or something and came running towards me. I've dropped the bucket around my life. <laughs> the wrath of the lamb. <laughs> but I was a little, very little boy, it was a very big lamb. <laughs> but in a serious sense, you know, this is the saying the same thing, but in an international, global dimension. And I must confess, I didn't ask any mountains to fall on me. So, we've got the lion and the lamb. The, where's, the, where's the emphasis? On the lamb, all the time. Revelation was of 27 lambs to two lions. The focus is on the lamb who died for us. But yet at the same time, there's still an element of God's wrath which promotes the fear of God. Okay, just about that. So, okay. So what? Well, very simple. We celebrate God's blessings, we contemplate God's warnings. They're both there for us, both the blessings and the warnings. And that's our challenge this morning to read to you, to all of us. We're very grateful for the Lamb of God who died for our sins. We've taken the communion service to remember that. But we dare not forget 
there's still a thing called the wrath of the Lamb. Strange, but it's there. And we must always remember that he, he died for, for sin. He paid an incredible price for sin. And therefore we must never take it easily, never take it casually, never just be flippant about it. Sin is still sin. God is still very holy. And God's wrath is still there. But thankfully, we still have Psalm 103. His great compassion upon those who fear him. His great love upon us as well. And we celebrate that. Now, I want to ask if, as a uh, closing prayer now, if we could become Anglican for a few minutes. Would you like to see if you could drag out a cushion from in front of you and uh, fold the kneeling rail back? If you can fold back. Perhaps it doesn't. Perhaps it just kneel on the Perhaps it doesn't. I think we can just kneel for a few minutes if we can. If you can't kneel, just stay seated. That's fine, of course. But if you can kneel, find a cushion. If you have to get up in, that's all right. And I'm going to be quiet for a couple of minutes. Miracle for this morning. And just let us all just contemplate and think about the things we've said this morning, and pray in Jesus' name. You just pray your own prayer. Fathers, we bow before you this morning or on this afternoon. <clears throat> Pray, O oh God, that like the song we sang this morning, be still in the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. Lord, as we here bow in your presence, there are things that we need to be hearing today. We pray that you'll speak to us today through our hearts, through our minds. God, uh, we don't want to diminish your love even at by the tiniest bit. We're so grateful because you love us so much. But Lord, we pray also that we will not forget your holiness and the necessity for us to live free from sin. We thank you we have the power to do it through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. But oh God, help us to be true examples of both the Lamb and the Lion. Lord, we celebrate your love, but we still contemplate your wrath. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you, we praise you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, you can take your seats again.